Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men Advanced Deodorant and Body Wash. Dove Men Plus Care. Dove Men Plus Care. Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men Advanced Deodorant and Body Wash. Let the confidence last. Game on. Weeknights from 6. On 2FM. To Andrew DePuer, it's Monday, the 5th of February, and this is Game On. Coming up today, I'll ask Ruby what Willie Mullins' domination at the Dublin Racing Festival means for racing. Yes, yeah, and Paul Corrie's in the studio to reflect on the Premier League action from the weekend just gone by, and Stephen Ferris will join us to talk rugby after the opening weekend of the Six Nations. If you want to get in touch, please text us on 51552, or you can find us on X at Game On 2FM. <laughs> On 2FM. I was having a little giggle there, Murray. I thought you were just about to say the two Andrews first. <laughs> I was about to say the two Johnnies, but they're not on today, thankfully. Yeah, you read the script. expected, uh, well, I predicted on Friday with them that Ireland would not beat France, so I had to eat some humble pie over the weekend. I'd say that was humble pie worth eating. Yeah, it was actually, I got some cake on the way home from work on Friday, so it worked out brilliant. <laughs> sometimes you don't mind being wrong, and that was one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Ruby, we're going to get into racing, and I did mention at the top of the programme that we'd be talking about Willie's, Mullins' domination, and, and what a brilliant weekend it was for racing, but there was some tragedy too, and, and I know you'd like to mention it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Keegan Kirkby, uh, who works for Paul Nichols, 25-year-old Englishman, uh, unfortunately got killed in a point-to-point at Charing on Sunday afternoon, which is absolutely tragic. And my thoughts and condolences are with Keegan's family and all of my former colleagues in Paul Nichols's. So, um, you know, it's a tragic loss. Words You can't put words on it, Marie, mm. but um, very, very sad. Yeah, I read some of the tributes, all right, and um, lovely words about him, and it just seems that life can be so cruel and unfair sometimes and it's really hard to actually move on to then talking about what a brilliant weekend of racing it was um, when something like that happens, Ruby. So I know it's probably difficult. It, it is, but it's, it's, it's sadly it is the risk that is involved in horse racing and, um, you know, I have had a few former colleagues unfortunately that suffer the same fate and that is the risk every jockey faces when they get on a horse's back but um, that is just it, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, well, moving on. Yeah, I know. It is, as I said, it is quite difficult to move on from something like that. But from just the racing point of view, then, Ruby, this weekend, we previewed the Dublin Racing Festival for uh, quite a few days heading into it just because of the the quality of the races and the horses and the excitement around. um, Did Jane Jane give you any winners before she bluffed her way through the rugby? She. She talked a lot about the weekend, but we didn't really get too much into the racing. We were more just chatting about Jane and herself. <laughs> <laughs> how did that go? Yeah, it was great. She learned all about what she does for when she's at the race and how she prepares. Yourself and Alan Cowley were chatting away like they hadn't seen each other in about 20 years. Did Not she give so us Marie National? No, unfortunately he didn't win. That he was, was quite disappointing. Yeah. No, he was quite disappointing. I was having a laugh though and she did inform me that she'd robbed all the notes off Bernard Jackman make herself sound as if she knew what was happening in the rugby yeah yeah yeah. she was quite proud of herself so she was yeah so Willie Willie Mullins well she definitely didn't say that Willie Mullins was going to come away with 8 grade 1 so she she didn't get that one right no and it's it was you know it would be unheard it is unheard of and it's an incredible feat now you when somebody wins as much as that or dominates like that you will have as many people bemoaning it as you will admiring it but unfortunately that is culture in 
many cultures, but it's definitely culture in Ireland. Mm. <laughs> There's no such thing as a, as a great team setting a standard. It's always, oh, they're too dominant. Yeah, you can think that in every sport, Marie. Dublin were the ruination of football. Kilkenny were the ruination of Ireland. Limerick. Um, Limerick are going to ruin it now. That's just Man the City. way. Yeah, that's the way it is in every sport. Um, people want to see champions, but then they want to see champions getting beaten. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, that's life. But Willie Mullins is dominance at the minute. I don't remember anybody dominating racing like Willie Mullins. Now, people way older than me will say Vincent O'Brien, Tom Draper, etc. Back in back in the day, but they're before my time. But what Willie is achieving now is outstanding. And I know I have worked for him since 1995, so my view of Willie Mullins is extremely biased, and I don't mind it being biased. He's been a huge part of my life, and I've worked for him for since I was 16 years of age. But it wasn't, or he wasn't what he is now when I started there there was 54 stables if he could train somewhere between 40 and 50 winners in a year it was considered a successful season and it's just grown from there to what it is now and you can say it's it's dominant and it's not good but it wasn't handed to him it was a work ethic it was reinvesting and building on everything that he had he always had a wonderful understanding of horses and saw things that lots of people didn't see but he built on that and he got better horses he got owners with more money and I think when Rich and Susanna Ritchie came in to the yard you know sort of 2008-9-7 around then sometime that allowed Willie to have a bigger budget and he was able to spend more money but how he spent that money is what probably sets out some from everybody else he even look at his winners at the weekend he won the 8 grade 1 races 3 of them came from within Ireland Dancing City Ballyburn and Fact Defile were all bought on the open market in Ireland and the other five came from France Cargis Silete Tom Gallop and the Champ in Perry Pass and Statement he shops on shops everywhere Ireland, England, France wherever it is to shop he shops but he, he, he has great scouts in Harold Kirk and Pierre Boulard in France they buy a lot of the right horses and behind that then he is a wonderful staff and he spoke about it himself actually yesterday and he was talking about the winter gone by and here we sit here on a Monday night, you and I and I moan about the cold, you moan about the rain but William Mullins' staff turn up every morning whether it's freezing cold or lashing rain and they just churn out the hours and the work. Now he has a great system in place where there's a lot of delegation there's 20 odd barns or, or sections of 10 within Willie's Mullins' yard and every barn containing 10 horses has its own manager so he has 20 managers and then there's a level up from that with mm -hmm. Dick Dowling and David Porter the two head men Rachel Robbins as well and then you're up again to David Casey and Patrick Mullins the assistants and then to Willie Patrick and, and Jackie in the house But and obviously then the different people in the yard but you get the vibe that it is a good place to work because there is delegation and there is responsibility held, handed to lots of people in different places and when everyone's pulling together things seem to happen and he's created this whole environment. And look, I've watched it grown. And then you've planning, management, good owners, good scouts. He has it all. And then he just makes it all click. But Ruby, we're going to get on to the competition and what it means for Irish racing in a minute. But is it a case that it's like getting athletes to pick peak at a certain time and he's really good at that as well? He is. His horses come in. There's a majority of horses come back in from their summer holidays on the 1st of August. But Willie Mullins seems to take longer than everybody else to get them to the racetrack. He seems to do a longer pre-season because in his mind, his horses have to peak from now until Punchestown in April. That's when he wants them. That is a huge chunk of the national hunt season. You have the Dublin Racing Festival, you have the Cheltenham Festival, Aintree, Fairy House and Punchestown. 
and they are the five meetings with the biggest races, the most prize money. And he could argue Christmas as well, so Willie tries to have them not quite peaked, but ready to compete at Christmas. And from there on, it's try to get them better and then maintain it from there on in. That's the way he goes about it. Now, other people see that and try and take the opportunities in the autumn when Willie maybe isn't firing on all cylinders, and that's the way they train their horses. But this is the way Willie Mullins does it. And then, because that's the way he's doing it, he's quite dominant this time of year. And when we look at football teams, Gaelic football teams, and we'll often, at the end of a season, hear about a team that's running up the hills in the depths of winter, or doing double sessions up at 5am. Why doesn't why don't people copy him? So flattery is the biggest form of, uh, or imitation is the biggest form of flattery, as they say. Um, I don't know, is the honest answer. Um, you have to have the horsepower as well, and he has the horsepower. I don't know, Marie, is it like, do you look at football teams, like what is Monaghan's goal this year? Stay in Division One. Mm-hmm. Probably not to win an Ulster Championship, is it? Well, it'll be tricky. But yeah. So you know, I mean, everyone sets their stall out in a different way, and Willie has his stall set out that he wants to compete from this time of the year on, from here to Cheltenham, as I just already said, and that's where he that's where he competes. Now his biggest rival is probably Gordon Elliott, who is probably much more dominant in the early winter to Christmas, and then obviously has to bite the bullet a bit. Horses aren't motor cars. You can't keep putting diesel in and turning them on. So he has to back off them a little bit in order to have them again for Cheltenham. And his horses will come back into form again by Cheltenham. But there's only a certain amount of horses and they can't race all the time. On the competition thing, so I know you mentioned the dominance of Dublin or um, Kilkenny in the hurling in the 2000s and Limerick at the moment. But racing is an industry and there's lots of people who are within that industry and they need to be able to turn up to work all the time. Is there any danger that the lack of competition for Willie will affect the industry? You could say it will, but unfortunately, Willie Mullins won't last forever either. And it's when you look at Willie's... So you look at Willie's yard now as anybody that watched the weekend, but the way Willie will look at it is, what did he have in the bumpers? what is his young stock Willie Mullins has the senior team but Willie Mullins is always very conscious of what's on the under 20s the 18s the 16s the 14s that's where his eye is the whole time What? where is my next talent where are the next horses that can keep me where I am the ones he has now the, the senior team will mind itself but it's always trying to replace it and you could argue maybe for the first time in a long time our under 20s well our under 20s are novice hurdlers but our minors aren't that strong um, our bumper horses wouldn't be as good maybe as they were last year and like any team Marie you get a bad under 18 team a bad under 16 team all of a sudden the senior team falls mm-hmm. off you have to have it keep coming behind and that's where the circle will turn it's when people compete with them down there to get those horses buying that stock and that stock is all on the open market but that's where people have to compete with Willie Mullins not so much at the top level now you have to get it at the bottom and bring it to the top I like the way you're making this very accessible. I'm sure there'll be lots of people who wouldn't have the knowledge that will be able to understand no, a little there, bit it better. Is, it, it is knowledge, and I know you can argue firepower. Like today, for instance, there was a dispersal sale in Tattersalls, and a horse called Caldwell Potter made a record price on the open market for a national hunt horse. He made 740,000 guineas. But he was bought by Paul Nichols. So, like, William Mullins didn't buy him, It's mm. or Gordon Elliott couldn't buy him to keep him in the yard he was bought by Paul Nichols and a consortium of his owners so William Mullins is not the only one with the money there's loads of trainers out there who can compete they probably can't compete in the same bulk but they can compete at different times 
and it's about getting the right horses. I thought you were going to say he was bought by Todd Bowley. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Corey's in studio as well. On a six-year payment scheme. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the weekend then. And we know that Willie dominated, but just in general, Ruby, was it a success? I, I'd say it was. Um, probably from a race scorer's point of view, I think Leperstown might have got it slightly wrong on Saturday. It was a record or a, a record crowd that I can remember. But I'm not certain Leperstown, as a facility, can cater for just over 20,000 people. And I would say for customer experience going forward, that will have to come back a couple of thousand. Do you mean bars, toilets, food, that sort of stuff? Customer experience, all that kind of stuff. And if you're having a bad time at the bar, you can't get to the loo, mm-hmm. uh, your squat, you can't get a seat. If those things are annoying you and you're not back in winners, all of a sudden a good a, a day at the races doesn't become a good day. And whereas people can look at what they may have backed during the day and think, oh, I backed all the wrong horses. If they had a really good day, they'll get over it but mm-hmm. if they've had a, an uncomfortable day it's not as easy and customer attention is huge in any industry any business like Sunday was much easier there with 16,000 people I'm just not sure Leperstown is big enough for the number of people that were there on Saturday and I hope it didn't put too many people off the results then probably didn't go their way uh, as regards punting was probably added to it but there was a huge amount of foreign people mm-hmm. uh, English um, and even from Eastern Europe, Australia, America, there was a lot of people in Dublin, in Leperstown for the Dublin Racing Festival. And I think that's great. The race can say it brought a lot of people, racing brought a lot of people to the capital. It did, but you wanted them to enjoy it. You wanted them to come back next year, to continue the spin off for the area, for racing to say, yeah, we are a spin off industry like so many others. They needed to have a better day out. And I just think at 20,000, it was a couple of thousand too many. Okay, so lessons to be learned then from that. I think so, yeah. and I hope Leperstown can see that. I mean, you have to listen to your customers too and what your customers want. Yeah, I could see quite a few people online, all right, just talking about, as you said, the customer experience. And then the talk beforehand, Ruby, was that the English horses uh, didn't travel over. Do you think that Willie's domination again is going to affect that now again in, when we're looking to the no, future? No, I'd say what happens in Cheltenham. Like, Marie, when the Irish Gold Cup came into existence in 86 or 87, it was the Vincent O'Brien Gold Cup, I think eight of the first ten renewals were won by English horses. We didn't have the horses mm. to compete. Forgive and forget, Nick the Brief, Play School, um, Jodami. We didn't have the horses to compete with them. So the English did come. I won one on Neptune Collage in 2008. Now, there hasn't been many English horses come since, but when you look down the track at what's going to happen at Cheltenham in March, or actually, if you just go back to the weekend before last at Cheltenham, at their big trials day for the Cheltenham Festival, their Gold Cup trial was won by Capitano, trained by William Mullins. The Cleave Hurdle was won by Lossiemouth. Not the Cleave Hurdle, the, the Unibet Hurdle. The Cleave Hurdle was won by Noble Yates. The better horses just in Ireland. And people... It's a choice within racing where you go and where you compete. You're not um, part of a league that you have to turn up and play a game. There's no competition that you keep going until you get knocked out. There are different races and you decide where you want to run. So if you can't win at home, very few people are going to go to an away game. Okay. And that's the way it is at the moment in England. Now you could argue Constitution Hill if he was maybe campaigned a bit braver, could have been here to take on Statement. I think it'd be great if he goes to Cheltenham and he could come to Punchestown and take on Statement. I think that'd be great once we get him at some point. But I think for Constitution Hill to be considered a great horse, he's going to have have to travel too. It's no good just winning twice Mm -hmm. a year in the UK. If he wants to be a great national hunt horse, he has to get out of his comfort zone. And just finally, Ruby, what do Willie's horses do now 
between now and Cheltenham? Uh, so this week they will all everything that ran yesterday probably had today off everything that ran on Saturday will have ridden out this morning just had a walk and a trot and they will slowly build back up over six or seven days to regular daily exercise and then sort of from 14 days before their intended target at Cheltenham they'll start doing fast work and build into it so fingers crossed you can keep the four legs under them all and get them all on the boat Paul Curry, are you listening to this thinking that's what it was like when I was a footballer? <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was that much planning went around me. And, and it is that much planning. It, it, it is. got to get them over the run they had, the recovery. And not like it's just not as simple as talking to, to a player. How are mm-hmm. you feeling? You know, are you tired, lethargic, you're happy, you're sad. You have to judge that on a horse by how they're looking, how they're walking, how much they're eating. It is instinct and intuition. I suppose you learn that, but it is much different with racehorses because they are athletes that just don't talk. Okay, Ruby, thank you for all of that. Uh, We're going to take a very quick break, but do stay with us. We have so much more to come. We'll be talking to Stephen Ferris about the rugby and all more and we'll bring us up to speed on what uh, he thought about the hurling. Plus, we have the Premier League. Game on on 2FM. Bundy carries it inside the 22, pops it, jumps it, gives it Park has it, charging inside the 22, going for the line, he's up for the try. Ireland have peeled open the France defence, 16 minutes gone. You know, that's that's a good start and it's one for one, but these type of victories uh, in places like this against a, a world-class side like the French and to, to play like we did, perform like we did and, and get the, the bonus point win, it's there to be celebrated as well. Andy Farrell speaking after Ireland's very impressive win over France on Friday evening. Stephen Ferris joins us now to look back on which was a very, what was a very entertaining weekend of rugby. How are you, Stephen? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Uh, brilliant weekend of rugby. Uh, unfortunately for myself, I was working on the Wales versus Scotland game. Well, it, it ended up being a good game uh, on about the 45th minute, I believe, when Wales started to come back into it. But a bit of pretty drab affair in the first half. But um, you look at the Ireland game and the quality that there, there, there was in that game, especially from Ireland, of course, who, who ran out victorious and des- deservedly so. Completely played France off the park um, in Marseille and were just it felt like they, they just picked up where they left off um, a period during that Rugby World Cup uh, last year and it's brilliant to see it's really refreshing everybody thought that there was going to be a bit of a you know a stumble with personnel changes big Joe McCarthy coming in Calvin Nash Jack Crowley um, I'm sure there was a lot of nerves in the build up to, to the week but they went out they performed Peter O'Mahony led the team um, really well um, just you know some of the decisions that were were made especially with ball in hand uh, w- w- was fascinating to watch so you know massive congratulations and it sends a bit of a fright to the other teams in the championship I'd say so but let's just talk about that Ireland performance uh, before we get on to the other teams Stephen what excited you most about it? I think it was just the continuity in their multi-phase attack. Um, we know that they use the pod system of having two or three different options all the time. Um, the, the players are left uh, with making those decisions or tipping it on. And even, I think it was the tag burn try where it uh, it sort of crumbled down. I think Tag Furlong tried to throw a pass out and it went to ground and they recycled and they got the ball to Hugo Keenan who injected a little bit of pace back into it and I think it was two or three phases later 
um, tag Burn ran in underneath the sticks unopposed and it was just the build up to that two or three phases before that there was a little tip bomb from Tag Furlong to Keelan Doris um, just the right decision the speed of the ruck was very good the quality of the ruck um, the ball placement the finer details on the ground fighting really hard to you know give Jimison Gibson Park that, that ball on a platter um, and yeah they were just all round um, right on it they were right on it and uh, it was Partly down to the French, in my own opinion, not really turning up. Um, their set piece was very poor. Uh, their attack was pretty much non-existent, and they lived off a little bit of flair and a little bit of indiscipline, ill-discipline from from Ireland. And um, yeah, you know, I think that the game was summed up with their mall defence in, in the last ten minutes of the game, the way they capitulated and Ireland went over, and, and it, they ran out, as I said, extremely um, huge victory and uh, thoroughly deserved and you know France will be licking their wounds absolutely licking their wounds after putting in an effort like that I thought it was massive collective res- responsibility Stephen when you saw James Lowe kicking as much ball as he kicked Bundy and Robbie Henshaw outside Jack Crowley it looked like the senior lads were going to make sure the young fella got on well at 10 yeah like really you've probably been there yourself where you have a good feeling um, in a race or in a, in a game where you know things are just going well. Everybody's um, uh, you know at the right in the right frame of mind. They're they're buzzing. Things are going your way. Um, you just feel at it. You know you just feel at it, and that's exactly what it looked from minute one in the game. Where on the other side of it, it just felt like France were off it, and the players I think realised that. And credit to the Irish squad, they went after them. They they really went after them. They seen uh, vulnerability there, and, and they totally took it. And you know, I, I thought the way they you know continued on kicking to the corner. Um, you know, there was an opportunity to kick three points and get more than two scores ahead, and they were like, no, we're you know we're going to drive the knife in even further. Um, and it was uh, it was amazing to watch how the boys went about their work and. And there's, as you say, there was plenty of experience and leadership in that group to understand and, and recognise that when a team is just slightly off it and when you're on it, that, you know, you, you put the, the foot on the throat and you go after them and, and they certainly did that. Make sense of that French performance for us, Stephen, because heading into it, there was, a, you know, it was kind of a, a split vibe about how the game was going to go, but I don't know if anybody expected France to be so poor. No, definitely not. And, a good chat with Jerry Flannery at the weekend. Uh, obviously, he's very heavily involved with the coaching setup of, of, of Harlequins over in the Gallagher Premiership. And, and he was chatting about, obviously, a, a number of the players would have been going back to play top 14 last weekend. Um, he personally think that during the Rugby World Cup, when you have you know all the French team together for that extended period of time, that they're all fit, they're all... Um, reading off the same page where when they split up and, and go to their, their clubs the pace of the top 14 probably isn't at the same level week in and week out and the, you know, the likes of Toulouse and some of the other sides get, get easier games at time where the URC just seems to be really really competitive week in and week out and especially the, the, the derbies that the guys are off the back of where you know they were ferocious at times and um, you know the 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 ball and play time was, was was also half decent considering the weather conditions. So, uh, also the week of, in Portugal uh, preparation, um, maybe a bit of you know really hard work done at the start of that week, and then they they taper down for match week. So I think the whole preparation for Ireland was in a in a much better place than the French. Um, however, 
that is not an excuse for for winning sixty five percent of your line out ball or whatever it was. It felt like about twenty five. Um, the way Movaka was thrown, he couldn't hit a barn door. He was like Bernard Jackman back in the back in the day. He was that bad. Uh, but yeah, it was it was just a real um, unexpected French performance that I don't think too many people seen coming. I certainly didn't see it coming. Um, and I thought just the whole Marseille, you know, the change of stadium um, would have brought out a big performance in them. But as I referenced earlier there, Aaron just knew they were slightly off and went, went after them big time. I wonder will he do a Jackman and tell you how good he was in the loose though, to cover up for it. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but what about Willemsa? I mean, the first yellow card on Porter, second one on Doris. I mean, once, twice at that level, can't be doing that like. No, um, and he probably wouldn't have been playing just a, a couple of injuries that France have had, uh, especially Miafo, the, the huge lump of a man who plays for Toulouse um, week in and week out. He obviously picked up an injury and Valencia, who is an experienced player, a really experienced player, but I don't know what was going on. Um, just a couple of moments of madness. And I think the first one was probably the correct decision. Uh, just the way they were both quite low. Um, Porter obviously took a, a, a good bang to the head, had to go off for an HIA. But the second one, the tackle is made, Ruby. Like the, the, the tackle is made. All he has to do is, is, is get to the far side and get into the f- defensive line or stand at the side of the rock and be pillar or 10 or whatever you want to call it. Um, and he, he just tries to absolutely level Doris and he levels him straight in the neck, slash chin. And uh, yeah, I, I personally think that that was a red card in itself so stupidity from him he let himself down he let his teammates down um and yeah he's going to obviously face the consequences of of a a ban and yeah it's not going to look good for him and something like that can really have an impact on your on your uh, international career especially after you know the the defeat that they suffered um it became a little bit embarrassing uh for them i'm sure so uh yeah not a good look and i think the referee uh carl dixon i think it was uh, dealt with the situations pretty well and um, the TMO and everybody got a bang on that he deserved to be two yellow cards and out of there. How big a talent is Joe McCarthy, Stephen? <laughs> oh, I wish I had his, his talent. Uh, I can assure you when I was first picked up a rugby ball, um, <clears throat> he is just, first of all, he, he, he's a big guy. Um, nicknamed Big Joe McCarthy for a reason now. And yeah, uh, the way he keeps... <clears throat> Coming on to the ball of pace, he picks and chooses his moments. He's got a half-decent right-foot step. He likes to swivel in contact. There's the leg drive. There's the double effort. So he makes a tackle back on his feet, driving through the ruck, making an absolute mess. Keelan Doris was pretty good at that at the weekend as well. Um, he makes dominant tackles. He wins the collisions. He'll be ridiculously strong in the mall, for and against. Um, so, you know, there's, what, seven or eight different things that he's very, very good at. I've yet to see an area of his game that's maybe a slight weakness um, and we, we might see something over the next few weeks but you know this guy needs to be playing week in and week out he is in the form of his life I'm sure he's absolutely loving it relishing every opportunity he gets I'm, I'm not sure in his wildest dreams 18 months ago two years ago he thought he would be starting against France in a, in a Six Nations game but, but that's rugby and he's put himself in that position all credit to him um, and all credit to Andy Fowle for, for believing in him and giving him the chance. And, you know, he's, he's nudged other players out, and it now feels like, you know, him and Tag were a brilliant combination. Both carried the ball a hell of a lot for second rows. Um, and, yeah, you know, fair play to Big Joe. He's taken his opportunity. 
They did carry the ball a lot, so someone like Josh Blanderfleer maybe didn't carry it as much, but he did, still did a hell of a lot of work around the pitch. Yeah, maybe he didn't have to, though. You know, that's the way you kind of have to look at it. Um, he didn't have to do an awful lot, um, and he wasn't pressured into certain situations to, to make him... Um, to make him, you know, the old Josh van der Freer that you see, you know, tackle after tackle and, uh, you know, carry after carry when, when you're in and around the loose. Like, Ireland broke them down pretty easily at times, uh, especially for a couple of their tries. Um, and, yeah, like, Josh, you know, has been under a slight bit of pressure uh, at Leinster um, in that position. More down to just squad rotation, uh, I, I believe. But, yeah, we all know that George van der Fleer is one of the best sevens in the world. And I think, again, the combination in, in the back row is, is frightening. Um, and the likes of Ram Baird and Jack Conan, British Nice Lions, to, you know, come off the bench. You know, it feels like Ireland are in a really, really strong place. You were at the Wales-Scottish game. What was going on in Cardiff for the first 40-something minutes? Did, can you explain that? Um... <laughs> I wish I could, Ruby. Like um, it, it was uh, truly bizarre. It was, it was one of those games where you're just sitting watching on, thinking, right. I'm sure these Welsh guys just want to get into the changing rooms here, and uh, for the final whistle to be blown and to save their blushes and, and and get out of there. But something just something just triggered them to to start to believe. And, and that's what it was That that's what it was down to was just a bit of belief like and there's so many young lads in that team we know the average age of the squad is around 25 um, Warren Gatland has made a number of left field um, decisions in his personalities he's picked and he, he's just went with it and you know Scotland that would have been the I think uh, Hugh Cahill mentioned it on commentary that would have been the biggest choke of all time if they had lost that game and, and looking back at it they probably did deserve to lose it the amount of penalties that they give away the amount of opportunities that they give Wheels especially in the first half when uh, Wheels just couldn't get anything going but um, yeah they, they managed to get their first victory in Cardiff in what you know over two decades so give them a little bit of credit about that. But you know, if they're going to beat Ireland or you know France uh, next week, they're they're going to have to really up their game. Um, and you know, I think Wales can be proud of their efforts, especially in that second half, and, and take a lot of momentum from that second half into the next game. Just a word as well, Stephen, before we finish up on the Ireland under twenties and their 37-31 defeat of France, and particularly I think Jack Murphy with his seven out of seven from the tee for Ireland. Yeah, I watched that game. Um, I got up the road fairly sharpish after the Wales game and managed to catch about 50 minutes of the match. And first of all, the intensity. I, I just couldn't get over it. You know, the speed of ball, the way the Irish guys are playing, very much like the Ireland team at the minute. If, if they believe it's on, they will run it. Um, they have good organisation. Um, obviously, unbelievable kicking. And I loved the, you know, when he, he knocked the one over on 77 or 78 minutes and he was touching his ears because the crowd were giving him a bit of stick. I, I loved that. And, you know, Andy Farrell's always telling players to be themselves. And they certainly were. Brian Gleeson in the second row was ridiculous. So good, so powerful. Um, um, so strong over the ball. Uh, Bryn Ward as well, he's, he's a young guy, he's another year under 20s, big Andy Ward's son. He played very well, number seven. Um, and yeah, the team just gelled very well. And again, to go to France against a big side, the French brought off, brought on sorry, a, a number of 
big lads off the bench who, who really made a bit of an impact but for Ireland to, to come back again and the match just flip-flopped so so much and it was brilliant to watch so congratulations to them and um, you know hopefully they can keep that form up later going through uh, later in, uh, in the competition It'd be great to see if they can and finally Stephen before we go England were in Rome Steve Bortwick with a much different side to the one he had at the World Cup nine of the players weren't even at the Rugby World Cup and they were rusty yeah, Rusty, um, I've only watched the highlights of the first half, caught the second half, um, and yeah, it was obviously a 10-point lead with a couple of minutes to go. England give, obviously give away a penalty or two, and, and uh, Monte Ioanni scored to sort of um, take the scoreboard down a bit, um, take a bit of the shine off it for England, but in saying that, England still with this pragmatic game plan, even with the change in personnel, we know that Marcus Smith, if he had been playing, I know he's out injured, things might be slightly different. Uh, speaking to some of the English players, uh, former English lads, now working on the games, they think that there is going to be a change. There is going to be a slight tweak with the way that they play um, during this competition. So uh, maybe we'll see a bit more expansive play because they do have some incredible players. They do have some quality guys who are performing week in and week out in the Gallagher Premiership. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, yeah, they they get off to win and start, and that's all that matters, I suppose. And um, you know they'll they'll look forward to the next couple of weeks ahead. But um, Italy, another defeat, even though they played half decent. You know, it's 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 just going to think it's going to be another competition for them where they're going to be up against Wales for for that wooden spoon, and we'll see how that goes. Stephen Ferris, thank you so much as always for joining us. We'll be previewing that Ireland-Italy match throughout the week. We're going to turn our attention to hurling now though. Niall Moran joins us on the line to reflect on the opening week of the Alliance Hurling League. How are things, Niall? Super, me. Good to be back, Sean. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's back again. It's hard to believe that we're back back at another league stage, but here we are, and it is up and running, um, Niall. And I think we're going to start with Clare and Cork, uh, just because it was one of those games that we're heading into, it and we weren't sure what kind of performances we were going to get from either team. But definitely, Brian Lohan seems to be the more happy afterwards the new blood coming through the fact that they were missing some serious names and they still managed to score 125 against Clare and get, against Cork and get that win Yeah, very important win for Clare um, I suppose with the nature of this year's league Marie, um, like obviously we've only seven of these teams qualifying for next year's Division 1 and I suppose that's really really important given the very quick transition nowadays from league to championship which it kind of makes it ever more important to get those games in the league whereas in old money you would have always had um, you'd have had a month six weeks you'd have got a, got a couple of high octane challenges so whilst the rest of us were only dusting off our, our turkey over the last couple of weeks these teams have really been at it and I suppose when you look at Clare they've kind of kicked on again from last year they look really really impressive in patches Um I suppose one really positive um, for Brian was even the impact of Grow Chee and Robin Musney. Uh, I know Robin was there last year, Grow a new name to me. I thought it was really well for guys who probably in the you could you could argue the first season. So um, look, it was a great it was a great win. Uh, they hurt really well in the first half. Yes, they were only a point up. Obviously, Cork kind of got two goals against the run of play, and then you would have assumed that with the win behind Cork in the second half, that they'd really kicked for home. Um, and unfortunately, probably in the first. 15 minutes I think Clare could have also scored Cork 5 points uh, maybe to 1 and I think that would be a huge disappointment for Pat Ryan his Cork management I suppose for Brian it just kind of reinforces the experience that these Clare lads have had over the last couple of years and without doubt I do think that they are probably the number 1 contenders 
to, to Limerick as we come. Um, obviously, Kilkenny will have to say, and lots of other teams will have to say over the coming weeks, but Clare look really well positioned again this year. It's very early now to be saying that, but I can understand why you would say it. And when it comes to Clare Hurling, um, particularly, I suppose, if you're from there, you're wondering what's different, what's new, how have they closed the gap, can they close the gap? What are you seeing that makes you think that they, they're not as far away maybe as they have been in the past? Yeah, well, look, without doubt, like, obviously you're not going to get carried away this hour of the year and look, you're, you're looking for little insights. Um, I suppose one of the things that I, you would see about Clare is just that even someone like Mark Rogers, look, he was really, really impressive last year. He just looked a different animal there yesterday. I know, look, he came away with man in the match, but even before maybe somebody scores, he just looked that he kind of owned the pitch a lot more. That was that's a guy coming of age. And I just like to look, I kind of named a couple of lads earlier on. I thought Darryl Owen was far more impressive. Um, even that wing back, maybe than what he was last year, I thought that was another bonus. So I suppose what you're seeing is that they're just developing. Like Adam Hogan will be another year older. Jeremy Ryan's another year older. They're coming with guys that have a lot of positive experience built up. And look, again, we had no Tony Kelly, John Cannon. There's a lot of guys that are going to come back into it. And without doubt, I think that belief is probably within Clare that they know if they do come down the home stretch with Limerick State, they do believe that they have the artillery to finish it, even though it didn't always come that way. Whereas maybe some of the other teams who are, who are new to it, even the likes of Tipperary, who were also impressive over the weekend, those they'll still have to cross that bridge when coming down the home straight against tip against a team like um, against a team like Limerick or whoever called it is any like you know. So that's where Clare have just looked to have a couple of more players onto what they already had, and they've settled they've settled management team, they've settled on the pitch, and all those things are very positive. Obviously, you were impressed by Tipperary. They were two twenty-seven, the twenty-two point wins over Dublin. What impressed you? Again, look, you're only catching it there in the television, so you're kind of reading it for what it is. But so, first of all, that's the Tipperary team that were without a lot of their stalwarts. Do you know what I mean? You had Jason Ford wasn't playing, Noel McGrath, do you know Dan McCormick, a lot of guys who will be playing. And yes, like two twenty-seven is really impressive um, trimming. Like they're right up at halftime, looked really fit, really strong. And even though it was up Dublin, they probably came back to them in the start of the second half. Hip again finished really strong like they suppose at the last got two goals there in the second half. Um, Sean Ryan, who was very impressive under twenties level there a couple of years ago. Gerard O'Connor very impressive with UL over the last couple of years. So I just think Tip, look, I think this is Liam Cannell's group, more so maybe than the group that played from last year. Like he probably inherited a lot of really good guys last year, but they obviously they might have been Liam Sheedy's um, soldiers whereas I think just the team that took to the field they're more so maybe in, in Liam's um, style and again look you will add in a lot of those older guys that come back into it but look he, he knows he has a job to do and you know, I mean, no better man than me to do that job and uh, I suppose look again they just need a little bit of settled a bit of time together to settle to kind of go into it and I suppose over the coming weeks they'll be hoping to try and pick off a couple of big wins and um, oh look it was even there next week now is an interesting one that like Galway are playing tip and that's a really interesting one following on from last year's uh, quarter final just when you're talking about um, about teams being a reflection of their managers or being the, the they're putting a bit of shape on them what would you say about Wexford and Kilkenny and, and what did you take away from that Noel? Well, I suppose, look, I, I, again like that, I've yet to see Wex from the flesh, but I know that Keith Astor was in the same goal as me coming up along, and I just one thing about him was he was extremely extremely well prepared, extremely honest, extremely tough. He would be well got by all in the sundry, and look, he, he's off to a very impressive start for a young manager, um, mm-hmm. obviously the one the Walsh Cup, and even like the nature of 
uh, yesterday's kind of draw was probably a game that was going against them and Kilkenny probably looked to have been in control yet Wexford kept plugging away and again looked at were proven to be a flying ointment of Kilkenny in recent years but just kept plugging away and they got, they got a result and all those things we gave him confidence and we gave the group confidence because I suppose look there's a couple of teams that are a long time out of action Wexford being one of them Cork being another one of them and I suppose they're still they just need as much exposure at the higher level and they're probably one of those teams who want to get to the knockout stages again because just the more exposure they get, the better they would get. And maybe it's kind of coming for those groups in the extra that would have won the, the Leinster 20s going back a couple of years. Like they're of an age now where they kind of nearly have to deliver or it's going to pass them by. So I suppose they realise the importance of definitely getting qualifying for next year's uh, Division 1A and obviously getting out of Leinster would be huge priority this year for them. It surely will. What about your own Limerick? One thirty-six winners over Antrim. Scored one nine. Were you happy, Niall Moran, or were you just expecting that? Yeah, I, I, again, Ruby. Um, look, it, it was it was what it was. Um, either like John had a lot of young lads out there mixed in with a couple of the older lads. Um, very impressed up front. Obviously, Shane O'Brien done a good all got an English all taking the plaudits. But I suppose the reality this league is probably falling nicely for Limerick in the sense that maybe two would have received weaker teams that had them first up, which kind of buys them a little bit of time to do that hard block of training. And so one of the biggest things that was evident, even over the last, um, over over the weekend was, even if you look at a team like Dublin that just falters badly near the end, could you put that down to heavy block of training? Do you know what I mean? So I suppose having the freedom to be able to do that training without having to worry about what's coming on Sunday will be a massive advantage to Limerick. And, um, there'll be huge competition for places and I think it's interesting to see like Limerick will, will be looking for options because again they're a team on the road now six, seven, eight years so there will come a stage where guys will start picking up injuries and things like that so John will be happy Look, again it's, um, it is what it is it's going to be a tough league for Antrim again like they down a number of guys from last year and they have a really big game coming now uh, next again as well so um, yeah they'll find it tough they surely will of course Limerick are away to Westmead next weekend Niall Moran thanks a minute for taking our call we have a quick break to take Game On on 2FM Welcome back. We're turning our attention to tennis. Ireland were well beaten by Austria in their Davis Cup match in Limerick. The Irish team lost all four matches, but it was a great success off the court as capacity crowds of 2,400 packed in to watch the event on both days over the weekend. The defeat means that Ireland will now campaign in World Group 2. But result aside, Tennis Ireland will take a lot of positives from what was an ambitious hosting of the match at UL Arena and which will which exceeded the most optimistic expectations. David O'Hare, veteran of the Irish team who predominantly works as a coach, spoke to our reporter Gary Moran afterwards. To have a raucous home crowd like that um, for a big time match and having world class opponents in Austria it's going to be something that's very dear to my heart for sure for years to come. Just talk us through the match from your point of view. Very tough in the first set. They won that pretty handy. Yeah. Things changed a fair bit in the second set. Yeah, I think, you know, they're top players and they came out and, and do what top players did. You know, we didn't get many looks in their service games. A lot of first serves from them. Good pace, good spots. So we were a little bit up against it. I think uh, from Connor and I's point of view, the inverse was true. I think we, we didn't make too many first serves weren't able to kind of get into the match. Uh, unlucky that Connor's first ball of the match was called wide. He had a great little first volley up the line and that might have settled us right in. But yeah, I think um, I think it could have been very easy for us to, to let the head go down and, and I'm really proud of how we competed out there, showed our character. 
um, and just really tried. And obviously, very fortunate to have had the the support and the home crowd to to get behind us and hopefully gave them a bit of a show in the second set and had plenty of cheers. So, yeah, I think that that was it. I think they're just that bit sharper you know I think they just anytime we had a few 50-50s kind of you know it's always momentum can go they, they created a few chances and Connor and I held and, and survived those service games and then you know momentum can switch quite quickly in tennis particularly dubs um, and yeah we just weren't able to kind of really accumulate any real pressure in their service games obviously we had pretty good start to the tie break and then yeah, went 2-0 up and I lost my point 2-1, can't remember what happened and then obviously serving for it 5-4 so we we did give, give ourselves some chances and um, I think probably that ball at 5-4 was probably going long and I got a bit overexcited and sailed a volley a little bit long, high four and volley long which didn't need to happen and then of course I hit let, let court and hit a double fault um, so that's probably a sign of just lack of matches really um, you know those boys have been competing at the highest level of the game down under in Melbourne coming into this with, with many more matches Connor, to his credit has been um, competing and doing very well at Memphis um, I felt like I gave a good account of myself I'm really proud of, of how, I, how I conducted myself you know it's, it's not always easy maybe coming into these ties with yeah not as much practice and prep as you would like you know I, I, I do play on a daily basis but as you know uh, you know practice and matches are a different thing but certainly you know the crowd was was fantastic and 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 yeah and it was it was a real joy to play in front of them today when you heard about the plans to bring the tie here did you think you'd get that kind of atmosphere and the teamwork between yourself and Connor and the fist pumping and all that that's one thing but the crowd was amazing yeah the crowd was fantastic and no I, I you know I guess no one really knew that that sort of appetite was there for Irish tennis, but I guess it's 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 a new chapter. We're, we're totally, you know, I don't know what's the right word, um, rejuvenated, I suppose, by by the level of turnout and and the interest in our sport. You know, I think it's definitely well contested and competed. You know, amongst all the Dublin clubs and the Dublin league. So it's it's really revitalising to see such a great turnout, so many young faces maybe watching tennis for the first time. So so I think the biggest win, albeit that the tie didn't go our way, but but we've a new wave of encouragement behind Irish tennis, which is which is what it's all about, you know, to spend kind of ten, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes at the at the end of the match to sign a few autographs is, is just exactly what's what's needed. And I think this tie was a great advertisement for Irish tennis and, you know, to have the likes of Michael Agui and, and Oscar compete to such a high level against world-class opponents, to have Connor and I, you know, again, we could have easily, you know, walked away with our tails between our legs and, and, and got smoked pretty convincingly, but so happy with how we competed and just stayed together every point and, and tried to make the most of it. And the next, well, how does the rest of the year look to you? Coaching Ram and Salisbury still, one of the world's very top doubles pairs. What's the plan for you for 2024? You know, obviously big year, Olympic year with the guys, which is exciting, so I have to factor that in. So it'll be, it'll be busy. Um, but yeah, planning a full schedule with the guys. Um, we go to Rio and Acapulco. So I'll go back to London after this, and then probably the following week I'll, I'll head to Rio, um, and then the guys will do Indian Wells, Miami, 
then get back to Europe for the clay courts, you know, French Open, then the grass, and then Wimbledon, and then the Olympics. So it's uh, it's very. Yeah, it's very compact, busy schedule. Um, but yeah, really excited. It's always fun. You know, playing matches like this is excellent for my coaching, really. You know, it's so good to kind of reacquaint myself with the with the emotion. You know, I think when you're on the sidelines, you can kind of, particularly at the level that I'm at coaching, you can get very analytical. You can kind of lose the human element of it. So, so matches like this, playing like this, really, really benefits my coaching skills. So, and that's, you know, what I hope to to continue to improve on to help Irish tennis as best I can. Now, very um, insightful interview there, and uh, unfortunate weekend for the Ireland team in the Davis Cup. Paul Corey is with us in studio now. And we're turning our attention to the Premier League now that we're on unfortunate weekends. We may as well start with Liverpool and Arsenal, Paul, and talk about a calamity of errors from that Liverpool team. The defending, Allison, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong, but that's probably my biased view on it as Ruby's was on Willie Mullins earlier was it just a case that Arsenal <clears throat> caused all of that carnage I, I think it was probably a balance of the two I do think you know Liverpool looked shaky at different times it's probably the shakies I've seen Van Dijk in a very long period of time in the first half in particular I remember an instance with Saka when he got into the box and you just felt like he was a little off the pace and then coughed up possession which is so un- uncharacteristic for Van Dijk so it maybe doesn't come as a coincidence that there was another mistake later on in the game I mean everybody's looked at and identified he should have headed the ball and not let it bounce but I do think once he's let it bounce Alisson has to has to stay because I do think Van Dijk was in control of the situation whereby he could have headed back mm. or he could have cleared it and um, listen they got in each other's way and Martinelli ends up with a tap in and, and goals change the flow of games and up until then it was very much a more balanced game than it was in the first half but yeah I mean that's it's very uncharacteristic that's one in a hundred when it comes to Van Dijk and Alisson they've been so flawless down through the years through Liverpool but it was just a bit of an off day I thought in particular for Van Dijk but that is not to take away from what was an absolutely magnificent performance from Arsenal I thought it was good to listen to Van Dijk afterwards absolutely and put his hand two hands up yeah. yeah and explain that I thought that was I kind of felt I got respect for him actually mm-hmm. yeah. I always had anyway but I just thought it was wonderful to see a soccer player be so honest yeah and you would say the same as well about Jurgen Klopp's interview and he said they looked at it at half time oh I'm sure they some of the incidents and were like this is what you're doing wrong this is what you're doing wrong Oh, that, that would be common across the whole Premier League, just with the access they have to clips that they would look of, of how they set up. Because if you looked at the first half in particular, Arsenal were so dominant, not only in how they played with the ball, but also without, if you saw Odegaard and Havertz played as almost two tens, mm. and they really starved Liverpool from playing out from the back. And Liverpool probably played into their hands a bit too much, trying to play through the thirds. Uh, often when you see Liverpool kind of being pressed high up the pitch, they tend to go long. Now, they may not have gone long yesterday because they'd no Salah, mm. they'd no Nunes. They didn't have that threat further up the pitch to stretch teams in behind. So maybe that caused them a few different problems. But yeah, I mean, I, I thought Liverpool in general terms were, were outplayed. And that's not something that you would have said a lot about Liverpool in the last couple of weeks and months. They've been superb in both the league and in cup competitions. But yeah, it was, it was it's always kind of... Um, it's nice when managers and players come out and they don't try 
you know, mask what mm. was a poor performance. Do a Jose Mourinho on Absolutely. it, yeah, and try and deflect. And, and, and there's also there's also an element of of experience that our club knows that there'll be more to come from this squad. And just be honest about the the performance that they weren't quite at it. Liverpool will still be there with City come the end of the season. Arsenal, I'm not too sure. And actually, when you look at the game and the result yesterday, I would say Man City are probably the biggest mm-hmm. winners out of that. They most certainly look to be. There was loads of other games of interest. United beat West Ham 3-0. Well, kind of a step in the right direction, was it? Yeah, I, I think so. Now, you do have to be careful with the likes of Manchester United because we, we've had sort of false hope in previous situations. But I thought, Ruby, yesterday in particular against West Ham it's the most in control I've seen Manchester mm-hmm. United of a game of football so often if even you look back to the game midweek against Wolves it was it was such a basketball type affair where it was down one end there was chances um, at either end and you never really thought who was going to come out on top but for this game it felt like there was much more control about the performance and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that you've got Martinez back um, I, know, I know he went off with an injury but I think he gives you a better distribution out of the back he also it, gives you legs it looks like he's going to be out for 8 weeks I just saw a flash up well, there in the screen that's not good because mm-hmm. he, himself Casemiro Kobe Mainu, I thought they gave them a much better foundation to build on and then listen with the attacking threat that they have you just kind of let them go and play and express themselves but Manchester United certainly showed something yesterday I thought that they haven't done too often and I mean Hoyland now scoring 5 in his last 6 games helps Garnacho adding goals mm-hmm. Um, Rashford scored during the week. If they can, yeah, and and that's something that you can build on, Marie. So it's it's definitely <laughs> a, a welcome result, but it's whether or not they can continue on this because too often we've seen false starts from Manchester United. Unbeaten in five games now, Paulo. They are. They play Villa away on the weekend. That'll be a stiff test, and that might be a better sort of benchmark of where they actually are. Villa hammered Sheffield United five 0 of course at the weekend. It looks like Sheffield United and Burnley are gone. Paul Curry. But there's four or five teams then that are in the mix. And I thought Everton got a fair enough point against Spurs yesterday. Or Saturday, sorry. Yeah, they did. And they caused Spurs a lot of problems and they fought hard for that point. I mean, the the two goals that they got, it was very clear from Sean Dyche's tactics. They're very good at set pieces. They're going to put Vicario under pressure. He made a howler against Man City in the FA Cup. And this was almost a mirror image, at least the first goal from Everton. Ball into the six-yard box. It doesn't seem like Tottenham defenders are getting around the goalkeeper to give him a dig out. But Everton did well at set pieces and they obviously identified that and took advantage of it. But you can see the relationship now between Deich, the players and the fans that Goodison is becoming a really, really difficult place to go. Spurs weren't quite at us, but Everton have shown in recent weeks that they're able to produce results. They're able to be competitive even against the better sides in the league. And if they continue to do that, maybe with a bit of help from uh, the points deduction, if they were maybe able to get some of those points back. I'd struggle to see Everton going down over, say, like a Luton or a Nottingham Forest. Luton, 4-4 with Newcastle, though. I mean, they were a goner three weeks into the Premier League. They're starting to grind away, grind away into form. I mean, you look at Luton and Newcastle. Newcastle, four points from the last 15. Luton have managed to get eight. They're getting the points, though. They certainly are, and Newcastle and Eddie Howe have a, a bit of a problem. I was just looking because... There's, there's been a trend with Newcastle and, and defending poorly. They're obviously without Nick Pope. Botman's been out injured for different periods, as has Dan Byrne. Trippier's been really shaky with his own form. They've conceded 37 goals this season. And you compare that to the whole of last year, they only conceded 33. And there was a steal and there was an intensity to Newcastle's play that has certainly faded, is, is probably the word, from, from last season to this season. And they've got a lot to work on there but yeah you're right I think every one of us wrote Luton off from the beginning of the season but whatever Edwards has got taken with Luton at the moment it's working and a player that I made my debut with um, who 
hasn't gone on to probably the levels I thought he would have as Ross Barkley and he is absolutely at the forefront of everything they do they give him the ball they let him make things work um, instrumental in setting up a goal scoring a goal on the weekend if you can keep him fit and also Chidoze Benny was superb mm-hmm. on the weekend they're the type of players that can help you make an impact um, but you can't obviously go too many weeks with conceding four and expect to get too many points they would still be my favourite Ruby to go down I, I think they've probably had their little run of form I could see you know, things getting a bit more difficult. And I, I just, if you were saying Everton or Luton, I think I'd have to go with Everton still. As a Chelsea fan, after their defeat uh, by New- by Wolves, where... We must you- be tied for time, are we? We are very tied for time. <laughs> how are you assessing where they are now? Oof, I don't As know. a Chelsea fan? I really don't know. If you look at the games at home that they've lost this year, uh, Brentford, Villa, Forest, Wolves, that can't continue with Stamford Bridge. The, the fans expect so much more. They're used to winning trophies, used to winning European titles. If the performances and the results continue like that, there's problems for Pochettino. I know the first two goals were very dubious and very lucky for Wolves in the manner that they went in, but Chelsea are so open. They're so easy to get at. Um, Teams are getting into dangerous positions far too easy. And unless they fix that, they are not going to get um, anywhere near a top four position this year. And they certainly won't threaten at the top end of the season next year. But before we finish, Wolves, Gary O'Neill, mm-hmm. what a job. Sold 140 million worth of talent, top half of the table. Unbelievable job he's doing at that football club. Okay, on that note, we are going to finish up. It is all we have time for Paul Carey. As always, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, game on, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, that's it for me and Ruby for this week, though. Um, talk to you soon. RTE 2FM.